I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 11, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'm reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Engel, volume 4, pages 848 to 853. At this time, Hart was reported to be on sabbatical somewhere in California. He maintained two attorneys, one from the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, and one from the Diocese of Cheyenne. On March 20, 2004, Jackson County Circuit Court Judge J.D. Williamson, Jr. was asked by Attorney Randalls to overturn his earlier decision on February 25, 2004, prohibiting the plaintiffs in the case from using pseudonyms to hide their real identity. Three days later, diocesan lawyers filed a motion to dismiss the case against the diocese, Bishop Boland and the three defendants on the basis that the charges are too vague and have not included pertinent information, such as specific dates when the alleged incidents are said to have occurred. They also charged that Bishop Hart's name was added as an incidental in order to magnify the case against the other two priests. Bishop Ricken defends Hart. Bishop David Ricken, the new ordinary of the Diocese of Cheyenne, who has called Hart his friend and mentor, has offered continued prayers and support for Hart. A canon lawyer, Ricken said, after discussing this, the charges with Bishop Hart, I am confident that he is telling the truth and he has my complete support. A native of Dodge City, Kansas, Bishop Ricken studied at the Pontifical College Josephinum in Worthington, Ohio. After graduation from Conception Seminary College in Missouri in 1974, he went on to the American College at the University of Louvain, Belgium. He was ordained a priest of the Diocese of Pueblo, Colorado, on September 12, 1980, after which he returned to the Greg in Rome, where he earned a licentiate in canon law and a doctorate in sacred theology. Bishop Ricken was vice chancellor of Pueblo from 1985 to 1987, director of vocations from 1989 to 1996, Episcopal Victor for Ministry Formation, 1989 to 1992, director of deacons, 1990 to 1996, and chancellor from 1992 to 1996, when he was assigned to the Congregation for the Clergy in Rome. He was serving as an official of the congregation when he was named coadjutor bishop of Cheyenne on December 14, 1999. He was ordained a bishop by Pope John Paul II in St. Peter's Basilica on January 6, 2000. Like so many American bishops, he was never a pastor. As for Bishop Hart, before disappearing from the Cheyenne scene, retired Bishop Hart told the press that he was an, as innocent of the charge of sexual abuse leveled against him as Colonel Bernardin was. Today, in my retirement, these unfounded accusations have caused me great pain. They caused me great embarrassment even in my innocence. 
You may recall that in 1993, the late Cardinal Joseph Bernardin of Chicago was wrongfully accused of sexual misconduct. The Cardinal's accuser later recanted, and the Cardinal, showing the example of Christ to the world, not only forgave his accuser, but ministered to him up until the time of the young man's own tragic death. In the meantime, while lawyers for Bishop Hart and Fathers Reardon and O'Brien and the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, continue to plead their case, while Bishop Ricken pleads for prayers for Bishop Hart, and while Bishop Emeritus Hart pleads his innocence, Attorney Randalls has reported that since the initial January 2004 filing, more victims have come forward, 20 against the three defendants, including three specifically against Hart. Bishop George Ruger, Diocese of Worcester. The case against Bishop George Ruger, a native of Worcester, Mass., is a complex one filled with lies and duplicity on both sides of the aisle. Born in Framington, Massachusetts, on September 3, 1933, George Ruger attended St. Peter's High School in Worcester and upon graduation entered Holy Cross College. After one year, he left Holy Cross College to attend St. John's Seminary in Brighton, a growing den of homosexual iniquity. Ruger was ordained a priest of the Diocese of Worcester on January 6, 1958, by Bishop John Wright. His first assignment was Our Lady of Lords, where he was assistant pastor until August 1963. He was then assigned to St. Peter's Church, where he served first as assistant pastor and then pastor. He was headmaster of Marion High School, an all-girls school, and was superintendent of schools for the Diocese of Worcester from 1978 to 1980. On February 25, 1987, Ruger was ordained an auxiliary bishop of Worcester by Wright's successor, Bishop Timothy Harrington, assisted by auxiliary bishop Bernard Joseph Flanagan and Bishop John Marshall. Officials of the Diocese of Worcester were initially alerted to alleged sexual abuse charges against Ruger on February 26, 2002, when the diocese received a phone call from Mr. Syme Brio asking for financial help to cover his therapy sessions. Brio said that he suffered from heart problems was living on disability and paying for his visit to his psychiatrist out of his own pocket. Brio said he had been sexually abused by Ruger as a young boy and was looking for a financial settlement. Bishop Dan Daniel P. Riley was immediately informed of the initial call, which was followed by at least two or three additional conversations between Brio and Monsignor John J. Sullivan, Chancellor for the Diocese. Sullivan later claimed that Brio had attempted to extort a mere $10,000 from the diocese to ensure his silence, and that he wanted the diocese to pay for the engraving on his mother's tombstone. According to Brio, the alleged molestation began when he attended a religious education program organized by the newly ordained Father Ruga at Our Lady of Lourdes. 
Brian's CCD classes were not held at the church, but at a large one-room community house. Young Brio was a pederast delight, a blonde, blue-eyed, streetwise kid from a troubled family with just a touch of larceny that could be exploited with proper grooming. Brio said that the abuse triggered antisocial behavior in him, caused him to run away from home, and ultimately landed him in the Lyman School for Boys in Westboro, a state facility for juvenile delinquents. Brio said that Ruga came to Lyman and checked him out on weekends. It was at this time that Ruga allegedly anally raped him. In his deposition on of April 2, 2003, Ruga admitted to being at Lyman School during the time frame that Brio reported the alleged abuse to have occurred. However, Ruga insisted that there was that he was there with the church's baseball team who used Lyman's field for interchurch games. He also stated that he did not make any hospital calls to Lyman to see Simon Brio. On other occasions, Brio alleged the priest took him to a home at 51 Egypt Street in Situate. Young Sime thought that Ruga or his family owned the home, but the property was deeded to Monsignor Bell, the elderly pastor of Ruga's Ruga's home church, home parish. Brio was able to give an accurate description of the house to his attorney, Daniel J. Shea, who before they actually visited the home. Once inside the house, Syme was reported to have vomited. According to information given by Bishop Riley, after Brio made the accusation against Ruga, he was taken to Vincent St. Vincent's Hospital, a Catholic institution, and evaluated at the psych trauma unit at diocesan expense. The diocese was advised that Brio had suffered severe trauma and his charges of abuse were deemed credible. The accusations against Bishop Ruga hit the Worcester Diocese at a critical time. In March 2002, Bishop Riley and two other diocesan representatives were scheduled to meet with Worcester District Attorney John J. Conti to determine how the diocese would turn over files and other information related to clergy sex abuse cases to the DA's office. Ironically, filing records with Conti had certain advantages for the Worcester Diocese. Under Massachusetts law, documents turned over under a grand jury subpoena remained sealed. Extortion or bribe. On May 10, 2002, a meeting took place between Monsignor Sullivan and Brio at the latter's Shrewsbury home. The two parties give different versions of what happened to that meeting. Sullivan said that he and Father Rocco Piccolomini, diocesan vicar for clergy, agreed to meet with Brio in May 2002 but that Brio canceled the scheduled meeting because he was not ready to discuss the details of the abuse. In any case, Sullivan arrived alone at Brio's doorstep on May 10, ostensibly to reach out to a possible victim. Sullivan said that he represented the initial review committee of the diocese's pastoral care committee. He insisted that no money was offered or taken at that time. 
Brio's version was that Sullivan came to his home on May 10 with a black bag filled with $100 bills and tried to buy his silence. Unknown to Monsignor Sullivan, Brio said, Brio said there was a witness at the scene who overheard the conversation between him and Sullivan. In a deposition given under oath on September 10, 2002, Glenn Alexander, a decorated Navy veteran and tenant of Mr. Brio, stated that he was at in the Brio home on three important dates in the Ruger case. On February 26, 2002, when Syme called the Wooster Diocese concerning the abuse, Alexander stated in his deposition that Syme had first talked with Reverend Rocco Piccolomini and laid open his heart and soul to this priest, telling Piccolomini that he had been sexually molested and sodomized by Bishop Ruga when he was about 13 years old. At one point, Brio blurted out, this is not about money. During their conversation, Piccolomini asked Brio to consider the harm that would be done to the bishop by going public with the allegations, said Alexander. A Monsignor Sullivan came to the phone next. Alexander said it occurred that it appeared that he did not want to know the details of the alleged abuse, but was more interested in figuring out how to make the abuse charge go away. Alexander said that Sullivan appeared to be laying a guilt trip on Syme. When the conversation ended, Alexander told Syme that he should get a lawyer. In his deposition, the Navy vet said up until that day, he had not known about the alleged abuse. On the contrary, he said that the revelation hit like a bolt of lightning. I was under the impression for quite some time Bishop Ruger was almost a god to Syme. Alexander said, when questioned by diocesan attorney James Reardon, Mr. Alexander said that he believed Mr. Brio loved Bishop Ruger. On May 10, 2002, when Monsignor Sullivan came to the Brio home, Alexander said he thought that the priest was coming over finally to take a confession or listen to my friend and his problems with the past with this bishop and to try to just rid him of some of his pain. However, it appeared to Alexander that Sullivan believed that money alone would ease the pain. Asked if he heard any specific amounts mentioned, Mr. Alexander said he recalls hearing $1,000, but that the amount could have been $10,000. The latter figure was the amount that Brio said he was offered, $10,000 being the standard starting price for diocesan bargaining on sex abuse cases. In his deposition, Alexander expressed concern for the deleterious effect the lawsuit was having on Symes' already poor health and that his friend Syme had already attempted suicide twice. On May 16, 2002, when state police assigned to the Worcester District Attorney's Office escorted Brio from his home for a questioning session regarding his charges against Bishop Ruger, 
Alexander said the officer was cordial and non-threatening, but when Sang returned after the lengthy interrogation, he was distraught, to say the least. Anxious, worn out, didn't look good. Alexander said he had decided to come forward to defend Syme when the diocesan officials specifically attempted to portray his friend as an extortionist. Bryo lawsuit filed in Diocese Reacts. On July 11, 2002, Houston attorney Daniel Shea filed a civil suit on behalf of Mr. Syme J. Bryo, J. Bryo with the Superior Court of Worcester charging Bishop George Edward Ruger with sexual molestation, including anal rape. Also named as a defendant in the case was the Diocese of Worcester and its ordinary as Corporation Soul. The lawsuit states that Ruger was so adept at enforcing the idea that homosexual acts were permissible that the plaintiff never connected the abuse with his lifelong history of psychiatric psychiatric problems until recently when he began therapy. On the same day, Monsignor Sullivan issued a statement on behalf of Bishop Riley, who was out of town, in which the chancellor said that diocesan officials had successfully repelled all attempts at extortion by Mr. Bryo and had reported Bryo's actions to District Attorney John Conti's office. The following day, Chancellor Sullivan held a press conference on the plaza in front of the chancery. Bishops Riley and Ruger were in attendance, surrounded by supportive diocesan officials, staff, and priests of the diocese. Sullivan said that Ruger's accuser had made up the story against Auxiliary Bishop Ruger. He stated that after two and a half months investigation, the DA's office was not able to substantiate Bryo's charges. Chancellor Sullivan also told reporters at the press conference that the papal nuncio in Washington, D.C. said there is no substance to the charges against Bishop Ruger. However, according to his court depositions of April 9 and 10, 2003, Bishop Riley said he did not speak by phone to the nuncio, Gabriel Archbishop Montalvo, concerning the alleged charges until the morning of July 12, 2002, the day of the news conference. Bishop Riley stated under oath that he had told the nuncio virtually none of the details of the case, except to say that there was no substance to the charges. Montalvo reiterated to Riley the rules of the game. Only the Pope could remove an offending bishop from office, and thus far there was apparently no evidence to warrant such action. Montalvo asked Bishop Riley to keep him apprised of the situation. Obviously, since the papal nuncio had just heard about the charges and had not conducted any independent investigation of his own, nor would he do so, he was not in any position to comment about the Bryo-Ruger case, much less opine that, as Solomon claimed, there was no substance to the Bryo charges. Bishop Ruger then came to the microphone and said he was innocent of the charges. These allegations are totally unfounded, Bishop Ruger said. 
what the allegations cite 40 years ago never happened. Bishop Riley also stepped forward and said he supported Bishop Brugge. On July 16, 2002, Bishop Riley issued a letter to the Catholics of the diocese assuring them that Bishop Brugge was innocent of the charges. The following day, Monsignor Sullivan was forced to take back the story that Brian's first lawyer, James Grabowski, had attempted to extort money from the Wooster Diocese for his client. The Wooster Diocese and District Attorney Conte. When Monsignor Sullivan was deposed by Attorney Shea on July 12, 2003, he revealed how the District Attorney's Office kept him abreast of the findings of their investigation of the Brio-Ruga case. Sullivan, as diocesan liaison with Conte's office, admitted that he talked almost daily with Assistant DA James J. Regan about the case, especially in the year 2002. That is to say that while Conte's office was in the process of carrying out an investigation, the diocese was given an inside track and made privy to important details. For example, Assistant D.A. Regan told Sullivan that all of the visitor log records from the Lyman School that indicated when and who took residence out of the state institution were lost. Monsignor Sullivan told Shea that it was important for the diocese to know that there were no records. Sullivan also said that Regan told him that Briel was a very sick man, that he had heart problems, that he was HIV positive, and that he had a criminal record. He said he could not remember if he was told that Brow was an intravenous drug user. Reagan, not under oath, later denied that he gave Sullivan the false information on Brow's HIV status. In fact, Brow, who is a homosexual, was found to be HIV negative. For the record, Conte's office never questioned Bishop Ruger about the charges against him. It is important to keep in mind that even though Ruger was only an auxiliary bishop under Bishop Harrington, he wielded enormous power in the Worcester Diocese. Harrington was rumored to have a drinking problem that often resulted in Ruger taking care of the diocese's daily business. Also, Ruger and Monsignor Sullivan were in charge of the diocesan archives, including the secret personal personnel records of pederast priests. My reading today has been from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, Volume 4, pages 848-843, and it is May 10, 2021. Celibacy, which is being blamed for the pederasts and homosexuals in the Catholic Church, simply isn't capable of transforming straight men and to pederasts and homosexuals are also all straight men outside of the priesthood who are living celibately would become pederasts and or homosexuals or indulge in pederasts or homosexual acts. Celibacy can't bring pederasty or homosexuality out of anyone who didn't already have that inside of them in the first place and would practice their pederasty and homosexuality anyway without the celibacy since there are married men who are also pederasts. Some Protestant ministers are also pederasts, and some non-clergy fathers and families are pederasts of their own children and of other children. 
Horatio Alger, a Protestant minister, and another dedicatee of the Satanic Bible, had sex with young boys. This also disproves one of Satanism's claims that it doesn't condone pedophilia in its public relations and official statements anyway, since one of its own founding fathers and mentors was a pedophile. Those few Catholic priests, comparatively, who indulge in pedophilia or homosexual relations with other priests do so despite their religion, whereas Satanists and worldlings who indulge in pedophilia or homosexual activity do so because, in capital letters with two exclamation points, of their religion, or lack thereof. Catholic priest pedophiles get a totally disproportionate amount of attention compared to Protestant ministers and fathers of families who commit this crime and sin too, not to mention Boy Scout troop leaders. Due to anti-Catholic bias in much of the media and narrow focusing on them to the exclusion often of more attentions being paid to these other pedophiles. When someone is getting all of the sex with wives or girlfriends or other women that they want and still indulges in pedophilia too, then celibacy certainly has little or nothing to do with priestly or anyone's pederasty. When you squeeze oranges, orange juice comes out, not apple juice or tomato juice or any other kind of juice. Likewise, when you squeeze or pressure people, what is already inside of them is what comes out, and the pressures of celibacy can only cause those priests to practice pedestry and homosexuality who had that inside of them already and not turn anyone into a pederast or homosexual. But why even have a celibate priesthood anyway and make those few who can't handle being celibate indulge in pederasty and homosexuality since Peter was married and the other apostles were married except for John and celibacy of the priesthood wasn't ordained until 1079 by Pope Gregory VII. It is claimed that that was done because when priests died, they left their estates to their sons and families, and the church wanted that money. Celibacy is another sacrifice that priests make to their calling, along with obedience and poverty, and some people in the hierarchies getting financial advantage from those things when it happens has nothing to do with the validity of the sacrifices themselves any more than the police's fulfilling their duties properly has anything to do has anything to do with police corruption and graft. Before Gregory the Seventh's decree of priestly celibacy, and it took all that time for that reform, there were many abuses as well, such as priests and popes fathering many children and even having sex with prostitutes and incest and even harems of women in their churches and in the Vatican and that corruption and worldliness had to be stopped. There is still corruption and worldliness in the church, which is what we have been talking about in our podcast and what Randy Engel talks about in her book, The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality, and the Roman Catholic Church in five volumes. But that is because even after the reform of the rule of celibacy for priests, corruption and worldliness and perversion in the church still go on, and we have more work to do. Jesus said, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life, 
Matthew 19, 29. But first, you have to leave all of that in order to get that hundred times more and eternal life. That is the priest leaving wives and sex behind and being chased for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I should like you to be free of anxieties. An unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a married man is anxious about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and he is divided. 1 Corinthians 7:32 to 34 But doesn't it also say in Scripture, now the Spirit speaks expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry with which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them who which believe and know the truth. First Timothy 4, 1 to 3. First of all, how do you know we're in the last days? Saying that because Catholic priests don't marry, these must be the last days isn't a good argument. Since Gregory the Seventh decree in 1079 and the Second Lateran Council in 1139 requiring priests to be celibate would make the last days a very long time. No Catholic is forbidden to marry. Men who become priests voluntarily abstain from marriage and practice celibacy with the understanding that in the Roman Rite marriage is not an option for priests. Rather than being forbidden to marry, Catholic priests freely sacrifice the option of marriage in favor of serving God more single-mindedly as chaste celibate disciples. Married men in the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church are allowed to be ordained. This is from Catholic Answers. Even among non-clergy, marriage isn't for everyone, and they don't have to be forbidden to marry to not marry. But, is, but just abstain voluntarily. How much more should it be appropriate for priests to choose not to marry so as to dedicate themselves more fully to God and their parishes? And now a reading from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, sections 1579 and 1580. 1579, all the ordained ministers of the Latin Church, with the exception of permanent deacons, are normally chosen from among men of faith who live a celibate life and who intend to remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, called to consecrate themselves with undivided heart to the Lord and to the affairs of the Lord. They give themselves entirely to God and to men. Celibacy is a sign of this new life to the service of which the church's minister is consecrated accepted with a joyous heart celibacy radiantly proclaims the reign of god 1580 in the eastern churches a different discipline has been enforced for many centuries while bishops are chosen solely from among celibates married men could be ordained as deacons and priests this practice has long been considered legitimate these priests exercise a fruitful ministry within their communities. Moreover, priestly celibacy is held in great honor in the Eastern churches, and many priests have freely chosen it for the sake of the kingdom of God. In the East, as in the West, a man who has already received the sacrament of holy orders can no longer marry. And this is all. 
that I have to read from or comment on right now. And so I'll end my podcast here. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.